Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. In this episode, we talk to Rajiv Nigochka. Rajiv is a fellow IFTN, a successful entrepreneur in jewelry exports, and runs his own company called RGN Global Enterprises. My co-producer Mrigank and I were classmates of Rajiv at the Indian Institute of Foreign Trade. Welcome to Move Conversation Trade Stuff, Rajiv. Thank you, Venkat. Thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. So let's let's begin with the start of your career journey. You remember, I remember that like you know, you and I did the same you know internship together. Then subsequently, both of us had uh, you know Africa backgrounds and so on and so forth. So the last thing I I at least personally ever thought that you would go into would be uh, jewelry business, right? So it's very interesting. How did you get started in this? Yeah, as you know, we interned together. in bombay and then after that i joined a pharmaceutical company and ended up in africa there after to set up a pharmaceutical plant which mm-hmm. didn't take off because uh, the company that wanted to set it up had some problems with the local partners and then i switched jobs and i joined the churchgate group and uh, worked there for several years uh, while i was in africa i started a company in 1993 Mm-hmm. and uh, thereafter came across when i was planning to come back to india i came across uh, certain situations which pushed me into the jewelry business mm-hmm. so but but then so, you know it doesn't randomly happen that like like did did something happen in africa like you know there are always legendary tales about like how people uh, you know have uh, sometime god given opportunities happening in africa or you know anything like that happened and which year was that when did you when you yes. got inspired to do something relating to to this was yeah this was i think uh, 1994 or 95 nine, around 94 right when i was uh, i had actually set up a cotton ginning plant with american technology and machinery in right. the state of minna uh, in the state of uh, Uh, in the place in a place called Kontagora in Niger state in Nigeria right. in the north mm-hmm. yes and uh, so we had this uh, factory already running and the directors were still there uh, the american directors were still there who were looking after looking after the final parts of it and we had a australian manager at the factory and we had a guest house right used to house and uh, feed us you know so yeah while having lunch there along with my chief manager chief engineer rather uh, a gentleman a local gentleman came and uh, tried to sell me a stone mm-hmm. and i had no idea about any stones at that point of right. time and he said there's something very expensive and i would you like to buy so i was mm-hmm. least interested because i was so busy with the project and i i told him i'm not interested and he said mm-hmm. no you just keep it uh, Give me a bottle of beer and keep this. So I said, "You're free to have a bottle of beer, but I don't need the, the, the I don't need the, the the stone." So he sat there, got a bottle of beer from the fridge, and finished his beer. And he said, "I'm just I'm I'm going to leave this with you. When you go to India, take it with you and see what happens." Right. So I reluctantly took it and put it in a bag, and I forgot about it. Then my first daughter was to be born, and that time uh, my wife traveled to India and. Uh, she needed a bag so as luck would have it was that particular <laughs> bag that i gave her and i found that stone in it 
Right. And I told her that this is something the a guy gave me in Pantagora, and uh, why don't you take it home and see what is all this about? And tell my father because so my father knew somebody who was a diamond trader in Bombay. He was his ex colleague in the university. My father was a professor, but he had right. left his job and started diamond trading, and he had grown to an extent that he had offices in New York and and, and and Hong Kong. So that yeah. stone was shown to them the next day morning when my wife landed in uh, Bombay, and they were very excited. It was a very large uh, aquamarine, which is okay. very expensive, and right. I got it for free almost just for a bottle <laughs> of beer. Right. So this guy, the son of this gentleman, he called me. Yeah. I was in, I was in Nigeria, and he said that where do you get this, and I'm very interested. I said somebody came and gave it to me, and uh, if you want, you come over and we'll go to the mine. I, I was meanwhile I found out, and there was a five kilometer away from our site. There was an aquamarine mine, so that got me interested in this. And when I decided to come back to India, I my father already knew, so he had done some research. He he found a newspaper paper cutting where there was a biology course uh, right. uh, being conducted by one Mr. Peshwa. The he was. Generation of the Peshwa of Peshwa, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I met Mr. K. V. Peshwa, and he was a geologist, and he used to take geology courses. And I did a brief course, a three-month course, and I did some diamond grading. It was just a hobby, you know. But in that process, I I was wanting to do something, of course. So uh, I wanted to do a business in India, and I was exploring. So. Uh, after that, I got more interested in this field, and I uh, and the journey started. You know, basically, wonderful, wonderful. Some, uh, so more information, yeah. Right. So, so then you, uh, you know, moved on, and uh, you know, subsequently set up your own gem and jewelry company, and then you went back to to Africa to explore that, and uh, you know. then you started making jewelry so how did that uh, move on like like how did that journey take off and what were your initial experiences right my initial plan was to trade in gemstones from africa because i had the africa background and yeah and india background so uh, i i went back to africa this time I went went to east africa i went to tanzania the famous arusha mines of uh, tanzanite And I went to Malawi. I met a lot of people. I met some Europeans who were living in the villages there and mining with their teams. And right. People used to come from Italy and uh, France uh, in chartered planes and used to buy gemstones from there, uh, very right. rare gemstones. But all that trade was extremely risky and a lot of cash dealings and people were shot dead and things like that. There were <laughs> some Indians who were shot also. So fortunate, uh, huh? Really, that's Africa. I, but I had little children, and yeah, I had little children. I didn't want to take that risk, so I came back to India, and I instead tried to get into jewelry manufacturing. Okay. So I went to okay. Jaipur, and uh, Jaipur was the center for uh, gemstone trade and jewelry, gemstone uh, jewelry manufacturing. Right. And I got some gemstones from there. I remember okay. I spent about seventy, eighty thousand rupees, and got some gemstones. and uh, then it was difficult to find carigars or workmen who will make the jewelry but somehow i struggled to find some a small team of workmen and i made some samples out of it it was a learning process 
after doing that i started selling in pune as uh, through exhibitions you okay. know uh, and i did get some customers and all and it was going okay you know uh, nothing great about it but then uh, one fine morning i got a call from a very old friend who was in the us he was a, mm. a guy from bishpilani where i studied he had also done engineering and he we were together there he was uh, a good friend and he somehow got my number and he called me and he came home and stayed with me for a few days and then he said you are doing nothing much why don't you come to us uh, mm. we'll do a business together he already had a software business so he had a development center and a microsoft training authorized training center in atlanta so i ended up in um, atlanta but i took my jewelry samples with me in a bag uh with no intention of really taking jewelry business very seriously we we i went there to start uh, or join him in his uh, software business right and we did we did pretty well uh, he already had uh, a good center running and uh, uh we uh, i i started handling his marketing part and i got the coca cola world headquarters contract wonderful uh, so it was going going well but uh, then as things would things would move his wife came back from india she was on leave in india and she didn't she they had a difference of opinion whether to take a third partner they were partners in that fair enough and since they had this difference of opinion i exited that yeah. after two months of hard work and uh, did try to do some sales of jewelry in, okay. in atlanta okay but without much success Right. And there was another friend from Bitspilani who was my classmate, and he was in Kansas City. So he called me and said, "Okay, you, it's not working out in Atlanta. Why don't you come here? We do something together." So I went to Kansas City, and uh, we did again try to. He was also into software, so he he said, "Let's try software." We were again mm-hmm. trying software, uh, but then the, in the evenings I told him that why don't we just try to sell some jewelry here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we were going in the evenings, you know. So after a month or so, nothing was working out, and I finally decided that I'll go back to India. I will see something there. But just before I left for India, about a week before my flight was booked, I made this fateful call, and uh, I I used to make calls from the yellow pages, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I made this call, and there was this guy called Jerry Kelly who came online and. I used to read out my little uh, <laughs> text to everybody I used to call. Yeah, all of us are salesmen, him. right? <laughs> yeah. So he, Jerry said, uh, "So what are you doing here?" I said, "I'm here to sell jewelry." So he said, "Okay, come on in on Monday morning at ten o'clock. We'll we'll talk about it." And I went there, and it was a very interesting meeting. They had just started a company a few years ago, and he he his wife. and her friend used to uh, used to run that company they had just one employee who was at the reception and uh, uh, these two girls they they used to go to mexico and get uh, jewelry and sell in uh, in in a, in parties they, they used to call their friends for parties yes. at home and similar to tupperware parties so they right? just started yes. off and yes and uh, jerry was a mlm okay. guy Uh, he he had a business. His father had a business, but they went bankrupt, and he joined the company as a manager. So he had the expertise in MLM, and he finally joined these two girls, and they started up 
full-fledged MLM company, a party plan network company rather. Yeah, yeah. And I met them at a stage when they were still buying only from Mexico. Mm-hmm. They used to go to Mexico, choose uh, pieces and come and have parties to uh, sell them. And uh, when I met them, they, they didn't have much knowledge about gemstones. They, we, we spent the whole day talking about jewelry. Mm. They learned a lot from me about uh, gemstones and I, they saw my jewelry. They were very impressed. This was, it was jewelry that they wanted, but they never could get lay hands on. Mm. So at the end of the day, around four o'clock, they gave me an order of $10,500. And that started my journey. I came back to India. It took me six months to get my company registration and IEC code and GJEPC registration and all that. Because I had no idea about the business. Right, right. But then it all happened and Jerry got impatient. But I told him, hold on. I was very honest with him. I told him this is the first time I'm going to export. And he gave me that much time. He had given me some advance also. And then we sent our first shipment and they were very happy with it. Mm. So it started, you know. Wonderful, wonderful. And then... Who, who all, uh, you know, they, they, they continue to be a client and you added more people? Were any, any famous names that you sold to? Oh, yeah. I, meanwhile, had started, a, I already had started a, a software development center in Pune and also a, a Tata Infotech authorized training center. So that was still my main business and this was a side business. Uh, but then in year 2000, around that time, 2000-2001, the, the dot-com, the bubble burst and, uh, uh, you know, we didn't get students and we didn't get orders and I had to shut down the infotech that, business. Yeah. So you focused on... And then what there. happened is by that time, this business had grown to about $35,000, not much. But I, I said, let me focus on this first. Meanwhile, I started, I tried a lot of other businesses as well. But this business had a kind of steady growth. On the, in the third year, he gave me a $65,000 order. And by the time I shut down everything and I went back to meet him in US and explore other avenues for jewelry business. So he gave me a $250,000 order, which was quite big in those days. So then I said, okay, this is serious business and I can grow it to multi-million dollar business. Right, so right. I started focusing on that completely. I shut down all the other businesses and I focused on that and I finished that $250,000 order. And uh, then he gave me a million dollar order in the next year and then became a multi-million dollar thing. I mean, the journey was very difficult. It was not easy because to find infrastructure, suppliers, you know, the yep, right yep, quality yep. and all that. It was a learning experience, but it was, it was fun. Right, right. Looking so, back, uh, other than other than, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other than other than Jerry, did you get any other famous names on your? Uh... Oh yes, after that, Jerry Jerry's company Silpara became one of the largest sellers in the world for silver jewelry. Wow! They focused on silver jewelry, and I so the, you grew them. with them. They grew with you. Yes, but then they found so many other suppliers from all over the world, including. Germany, Israel, China, India. Yeah. They grew, grew very fast and I grew with them. <clears throat> and then I found other customers. I started participating in shows, jewelry shows around the world in Hong Kong and Tucson and uh, Las Vegas. And I found other customers. I found, uh, I mean, people came looking for us because they knew that this is a major supplier for Zilpara. So people used to come to 
for example, QEC came to know about us and QEC USA, which is one of the largest companies there at that time for jewelry. They came to- This, this is the television, the right? Based on television. Yes, it's show, a television program. company, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then we started working with QEC, QEC and Silpala, and then the business was growing faster than our infrastructure. Wonderful. And then the time came when uh, social compliance became very important for U.S. companies. There were some new laws passed by the U.S. government and uh, any supplier beyond certain values would have to have social compliant, socially compliant factories to supply to large U.S. companies. And our, we, we didn't have a socially compliant factory at that time because we were still a small player. Right. So uh, our company failed in social compliance. Silpala stopped working with us. The bad time started and then 2008 came and uh, there was a dip in the market and, you know. Yeah, financial crisis, right? Financial crisis. So we had lots of problems. But what saved us was my strategy of having a parallel business in the real estate. So whatever uh, money we were earning and were not investing, it was spare money we were investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing some land deals, trading in lands, and uh, around 2005-06 was a good time for for real estate right. you know, when prices were doubling every year. So when we when we came into financial problems due to the uh, the financial crisis, we had loans on the factory which was coming up. We had to pay back loans, and we didn't have customers. We didn't have orders, so we leveraged on real estate. I sold a piece of land, three acres of land where prices had shot. I had invested some crore rupees and I sold it for more than six crores. So that gave us a lot of liquidity, you know. So that, that helped you the, the downward phase, right? To come out of your downward phase that helped you. Yes, exactly. I used that liquidity in finishing the factory. And then when the factory was completed, then we had to struggle to get back customers and we got some new customers as well. And then and Silpada came back. Meanwhile, Silpada was sold by our original owners uh, to A1. A1 could not run it. It was sold for some six thirty million dollars, and A1 could not run it, so they auctioned it back. And uh, the original owners, Jerry and his wife and others, they bought it back for some eighty million dollars. <laughs> and so, now, so you went through this phase, right? So, yes. so. And you, you you became socially compliant and you know you could supply back to all these people yes. right yes, so yes. Um, so do you want to give us an idea of uh, so social compliance was one issue about the indian jewelry landscape that you have pointed out yes. to me that yes. uh, you know um, you uh, not only you but many other companies in in, in jewelry yes. and probably many other uh, you know labor intensive exports would have been non social non compliant on the social issues like for the yes. us right uh, any other notable things about the jewelry export landscape before we move on to the post uh, you know uh, to the yes. modern era Right. Yes. Uh, when I started, internet was still in the nascent stage. You know, mm-hmm. we used to send uh, fax messages. We used to uh, emails were not very common, mm-hmm. and uh, internet had not boomed at that time. And so, so because of lack of knowledge that buyers had, and we had the knowledge of suppliers. Right. So we were able to make a lot of money in terms of uh, just trading. 
you know, right. without much inf infrastructure. So right. we were buying, for example, chains from a supplier in Agra and we were just trading. We used to get the box, change the label and export it and make, double our money. And for that also, they used to pay us advance. So we, without much of investment, we were making a lot of money. Mm. So those were the good days. But then mm. when internet came and it became a great leveler, everybody came to know everything and the, the jewelry shows started and people started going to jewelry shows and uh, uh, internet came and internet uh, through internet, they came to know who are the manufacturers and all that. So we lost all that advantage of lack of information that European and American buyers had. Right. And uh, then we had to really compete in terms of quality, in terms of timely supplies, in terms of prices. Right. So it was and regulatory compliance. Easy. Yes. Right. Right. So uh, that was a tough time. But then, yeah, we had a, we had the infrastructure. We had a very large factory, which we still have. And uh, it was completely socially compliant. And uh, we had a lot of space and infrastructure and everything on, under one roof. So we did succeed finally in getting new customers. And, you know, uh, of course, we had to be very innovative in terms of designing as well. Right. We right. had to of the market and had a have a design team then we had to automize automatize everything uh, cat designing came in you know camming came in mm -hmm. and aut automation came in all that mm -hmm. you know so, so at this stage maybe design. maybe for some of us to understand your industry better you know you talked about design you talked about uh, cat cam and you talked about yeah. uh, um you know the the automation and so on so let us help us understand uh, what are the steps in your jewelry uh, manufacture okay it, it starts with the raw metal that is okay. silver or gold or uh, or base metal brass if, mm -hmm. if you're into that kind of jewelry uh, and then from there you make uh, you go to casting you cast the metal or you you ha hand work on it. There are two okay. ways. One is casting, one is hand working. Okay. So uh, handmade jewelry has its own market. A lot of people like handmade jewelry. It has a different mm -hmm. look. Uh, after that, it's, uh, I'm just going to be brief because, you know. Yeah, sure. So uh, after casting, you go to filing. filing after filing, it's uh, polishing, stone studying, and plating, you know, finishing, okay. quality control, and mm -hmm. packing. That's it. Okay. That's, so, that's it. It's not as simple as it appears from my talk, but yeah, yeah. those are the basic steps. Yeah. <laughs> right. Basic. No, we'll come, we'll revisit them probably when we talk about technology yeah. and so on. Yeah. So, you know, just to get a basic understanding of what happens, you know. Right. So, which are the major countries that make jewelry and export them? And, uh, you know, which are the uh, major importers? India is a major player in jewelry industry. It has been mm -hmm. traditionally a major player. Apart from India, there's China. Mm -hmm. uh, is Thailand, mm -hmm. uh, Indonesia, Mexico, mm -hmm. to some extent G uh, Germany. Germany, mm -hmm. they were masters in uh, gemstones, but that market is now taken over by India and China. Mm -hmm. And there's Italy. Italy is Italy. Italian jewelry is very very uh, well received in the market, mm -hmm. and they have very high quality and premium uh, jewelry. Mm -hmm. They're still a big player. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Israel, uh, Mexico, 
these are some of the com- uh, countries that are major players in jewelry manufacturing and the buyers as usual in us is an ocean it's a, it's a very big market apart from us it is germany france uh, uk mm-hmm. japan australia mm-hmm. the western markets india and china are also very big markets but indian india usually makes its own jewelry and sell, sell in the local market right same thing with china but nowadays a uh, lot of italian jewelry is being imported also from thailand so the scene is changing you know right so so there's just one more thing which i thought i i should understand um the uh, you talked about uh, you know earlier about brass silver and gold you now you're talking about uh, how you know italian jewelry is at a premium end you talked about uh, mexican jewelry and other countries so uh, what are the categories of jewelry what what should we know what are the categories of jewelry how do you you know uh, imitation so, jewelry okay broadly imitation jewelry and precious metal real jewelry okay. broadly those are the two categories okay right mm. now in precious metal jewelry we have uh, gold jewelry silver jewelry studded and plain jewelry diamond studded jewelry precious stone studded jewelry and semi precious stone studded jewelry and in imitation okay. you have uh, base metal like uh, pewter and brass okay and uh, you have uh, uh, imitation stones or beads mm-hmm. and some plain jewelry as well so those are the broad categories you know yeah. and which of these are competitively produced in india you know we know that golden jewelry uh, golden silver jewelry is traditionally produced in india uh, what else are we competitive and what yeah. else are we not competitive india produces almost all categories of jewelry okay it also produces uh, a lot of gemstones it also mm-hmm. cuts 9 out of 10 uh, diamonds traded in the world so india the major has a major role you know we make a lot of diamond diamond jewelry we make a lot of the loose diamonds as well silver jewelry gold jewelry we export, our exports are very pretty high mm-hmm. and we have a large market domestically as well so mm-hmm. india is a major player and we are competitive in everything except china has lot of automation it has brought in lot of automation so they have succeeded in in different areas okay you know, the gemstone industry is very highly automated so mm-hmm. they their product is very consistent mm-hmm. our product is still not that automated and is not very consistent okay uh, so automation is coming in but there is a there is a gap between the engineering industry in india and the jewelry industry there is not much of intermingling and therefore there is a problem with of automation coming in very quickly into india But let me let let me split that into two parts. First, uh, you know, one part I want to understand is uh, what has China automated in terms of uh, you know actually in terms of uh, gemstone and jewelry manufacture. That's the processes, for example, okay. gemstone industry in India is still very and, labor intensive, and right. everything is a lot of it is done by hand. Okay, but they have automated machines. Okay, you know, so they that will come and place the stone in the yes it, automated. Okay. It, it produce those machines produce a large number of stones in a very short period and with a lot of consistency. Oh, the production it of the stone been, itself has been automated. The cutting, everything has been automated. Yes. yes okay, and is. also embedding. So the, embedding, no embedding. Uh, well, to some extent, yeah. In India, also we are doing uh, what you call as wax setting, which means. Okay. 
uh, you set the stone in a wax piece and then when the casting comes out, it is already set with stones, which we often do for diamonds in our factory and for some other gemstones. But due to the high temperature of uh, casting, some a lot of gemstones cannot withstand those those temperatures and they spoil. So you cannot do that. But other than that, a lot of cutting is automatic. <clears throat> sorry, for gemstone no, said... setting is still mm. involves a lot of uh, manual uh, labor. Labor. You know, right. So cutting a yeah. lot of it, do you say China has automated? Are they able to get that kind of uh, <laughs> lovely cuts and uh, consistent cuts and uh, you know the, the the light fall it falls through and the good effects? Yeah. Is yeah. are they able to bring out those things? Yes, they are able to do a lot of bring in a lot of consistency in in the, in the gemstone process. Also, they have very large factories of of uh, jewelry manufacture as mm -hmm. compared to India. Mm -hmm. India, as usual, has large number of smaller factories, but they have very large factories. Right. You know, so their their production capacities are very very high in individual factories. Now India right. also has uh, larger factories, but they they have a certain advantage. But India still has an advantage in in certain areas. For example, designing. You know, India Indian designs are different. Indian designers have a different uh, mindset. But that they still need to go a long way because we still have to compete uh, with Italians in designing, for example. Right. The other point that we talked about and uh, was about the disconnect you feel because India, you know, um, Pune, where you come from, uh, and and other parts of India have, uh, you know. Uh, various uh, automotive and other ind engineering industries they are famous yes. for, and a lot of automation has taken place. We have, you yes. know, um, right. so so you were referring to the thing that there is that disconnect, uh, yes. you know, be between uh, the gem and jewelry industry, which may which can benefit from automation, and uh, the you know right. industrial automation in which India is not you know not that bad, and given these yes. same areas yes. where these things are done, uh, you know, western right. part of India, so. Briefly, in a few minutes, just help us understand where is that and how why is there that missing disconnect and what can be done to make that connection? We also think they are right. two different industries. Well, one little problem with jewelry industry is that uh, the industry is dominated even now by traditional jewelry families, jeweler families. So, unlike you, you're a professional been... <laughs> management professional. Yeah, I'm. I'm a first-generation entrepreneur, and I started jewelry industry. It's very rare, you know. Yeah. So yeah. there so, are very few companies like Panish, who are which are professionally managed companies, not uh, family-owned yeah. businesses. Right. So most of even the larger jewelry manufacturing companies are family-owned businesses. So right. second, third, fourth generations are running those businesses. So there's a mindset that that is still there, and. The, the idea of exploring automation and all that is not uh, they are not very receptive to that okay so we have automation in uh, engineering industry automate automobile industry in india but that has not entered into jewelry industry because of the mindset so but that will change with the new generation coming in you know but it is taking too long in my view it should happen okay much faster that has happened much faster in china and therefore they have an advantage right right okay so that 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 helps us to 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 understand better so it's it's a it's a the industry's mindset issue 
leadership yes. mindset issue it's not yes. that the indian engineering industry is unwilling to collaborate or something like that that is not the problem no no not at all no. not at all they, they will be happy to collaborate i try try to do those those few things and uh, uh, i i try to get some people from here to repair my italian uh, machinery german machinery and they were able to do it at mm. at, at a fraction of cost mm. Mm. so uh, so that more of that interaction has to take place right oh. right that's wonderful i think uh, that gives us a better understanding of where, where yes. it is thank you for joining us in yet another episode of move conversations hope you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the move conversations youtube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes thank you very much till i see you in the next episode thank you very much have a great day